Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, and Co-op Radio 91.7 KOOP, the premier community radio station of the nation, right here in Austin, Texas. We return to our interview with Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector, as he speaks to the contextual history of Stefan Bandero and neo-Nazism in the Ukraine theater. Uh, many of the names that you hear in American politics today, people like Alexander Venman, uh, Victoria Newland, the Chulapa sisters in Washington, D.C., and in Canada, there's many people. They are all part of this Western Ukrainian diaspora. They are part of various Ukrainian-centric organizations that have links to Stepan Bandera. Man, here in New York, just south of me in the Catskill, the Ukrainian nationalists maintain a camp where every year American Ukrainians gather and put on the Nazi uniform of Stepan Bandera and celebrate this man here in the United States. Mm -hmm. This is a reality. It's not fiction. And we know about it. CIA funded them and maintained their links. So when this revolt took place in late 2013, 2014, it was done by people with CIA links. The CIA orchestrated this. They made this happen. They empowered them. They helped bring them into power using violence. And then they sought to control them. But it was embarrassing because you can't ignore the fact that they fly the swastika, that they tattoo their bodies with German Nazi symbols. But it got so bad that in 2014, the Ukrainians decided, well, the best way to deal with this is to incorporate them into the army. Now, let's think about this for a second. Imagine in the United States that the Ku Klux Klan got together and formed you know, volunteer militia battalions to enforce the border crossing. And so they were on the border gathering up Mexicans, slaughtering Mexicans, crossing over into Mexico, shooting up people, doing horrible things. And the way we decided to deal with this was not to forcefully disband them and arrest them all as criminals and prosecute them, as they should be, but rather to incorporate the Ku Klux Klan battalions into the United States Army intact. Intact. That's what the Ukrainians did with the Nazis. And now that you're in the Army, you can't tell me that if the United States did that, somebody would look and say, oh, well, the Americans aren't racist. Sure we are. We just allowed the Ku Klux Klan to come in the army intact. Not only that, all the officers now get to go to the academies and then they get to go into the divisions and the corps above them. And basically this hateful ideology permeated throughout the military. It got so bad that when U.S. military personnel started going to Ukraine in 2015 to train the Ukrainian army, their photographs were coming out showing you know, American soldiers next to a guy with a Nazi tattoo. And Congress went, whoa, 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 we can't do that. So they passed legislation that prohibited United States taxpayer dollars to be used to train the Nazis. And the U.S. was supposed to create this filtration system that kept the Nazis away from U.S. training. It never worked because the Nazis were now in the Ukrainian army. John Conyers was the sponsor of that under the Obama administration. And the Obama administration continued to send the military aid. Yeah, without, yeah, but here, yeah go ahead. But, but this is the, this is the critical part. We'll fast forward to the, you know, we got to 2020, 2021, and basically that U.S. legislation was ignored by the U.S. military under orders. They were told to train everybody, train everybody, Nazis, whatever, doesn't matter, just train them. Okay, so they did. But you know, there's a 40 billion dollar bill before the U.S. Senate right now. Thank goodness, Rand Paul 
has stepped up to do the right thing and question it, to slow it down and maybe get some saner heads to think about what's going on in there. There's $11.5 billion set aside for provision of, of military equipment and get this, pay the salaries of the Ukrainian armed forces. I don't know if the American taxpayer understands that. We are paying the salaries of the Ukrainian military, which includes the Nazi units. We are paying the salaries of Nazis. We, the American people, whose grandfathers died crossing Normandy, who stormed their way across France and into Germany during World War II to bring an end to this hateful ideology, are funding the Nazis. We're paying for them. Not just that, but the International Legion of the Territorial Defense Units of the Ukrainian military, these mercenaries, we're paying their salaries as well. Do you think that's really what the American people want? It's to pay a Ukrainian sergeant or a Ukrainian captain. But to pay a Nazi and a mercenary, this is disgusting. This is despicable. It's the most un-American thing imaginable. And yet it's happening. And the Senate doesn't want to have a vote on it. They just want to pass it through unanimous consent and send it on to the president who will sign it into law. And let me just add that this goes without saying that 27 million Russians died repelling the Nazi German forces on the Eastern Front there. And as you've indicated, another part of the platform of concerns that led to the invasion that Russia instigated was the denazification of those influences. Hey, first of all, thank you for that analysis. I think that was very, very in-depth. And I think at the end of the day, this guy, Jamie Raskin, the Democrat from Maryland in the House, I sat around listening to all of his words and I've got it taped. These one-sided, profoundly undiplomatic and slanderous accusations based on the absence of context, I might say propaganda at its height. And these comments about, about Russia that are completely shameful and, and partisan, but I won't go there right now where I wanted to ask you to address to complete our visit with you today is the situation militarily, if we can back up for a second, because you've been on top of this from the very get-go, and I think clearly are the most reliable source for people that are really trying to get an understanding of the facts on the ground in the conflict. I know you're not there, but I know you're very well connected to people that are and sourcing that is. And when you think about the actual presentation to the American public is that Russia's back on its heels. They're losing ground in certain ways now. I think most recently, yesterday, uh, reports of Kharkov and such. There was the encirclement of the Donbass, some 50,000 Ukrainians. Can you give us an update, militarily speaking, what's going on as we speak from your perspective? I think we need to start off with just the statement of reality. Um, While the United States and NATO are portraying this as a Russian war against Ukraine, it's actually the furthest thing from a war against Ukraine. It's a special military operation, and this just isn't politicized. Uh, It has very specific legal limitations placed on the Russian armed forces by the Russian government, uh, not just Vladimir Putin, but by the Russian parliament, etc. So Russia has to act within the constraints of this. To give you an example, if this was war, Zelensky would be dead. That's just about as plain a statement as I can make. Uh, he wouldn't be doing video conferences with parliaments around the world, the U.S. Congress begging for money. He wouldn't be having propaganda of videos released every night. Uh, he wouldn't be, he'd be dead. And so would all of the Ukrainian leadership, because that's what you do in war. You kill the command and control capacity of your enemy. 
the ability of Ukraine to function as a nation state would have ended a long time ago. There would be no internet connectivity, no telephone communications, no television, no trains, no bridges, no roads. That's what happens when you go to war. None of that's happening. Now, today, some of the trains are being interdicted because Russia has been compelled to do so by the provision of tens of billions of dollars worth of, of military equipment by the United States and NATO. So Russia's had to up special military operation to try and deal with that. But they're still acting in a way that allows the Ukrainians use of their rail network for civilian purposes and to allow the Ukrainian economy uh, such that it is today to continue to function. These are things that would not be allowed during wartime. So we have to start off by saying that. And the special military operation has limited objectives. The Russian objectives are clear, to liberate the Donbass in its entirety. And in order to secure the Donbass and Crimea, to create a land bridge connectivity between Crimea and the Donbass. Russia is in the process of achieving that. They had a phase one operation where they did a, a large scale military feint against Kiev to freeze Ukrainian forces in place to help shape the battlefield. But phase one ended. Now they're focused on phase two, which is not, by the way, it does not, by the way, include the capture of the city of Kharkov. So the fact that the West is focused on what's going on in Kharkov while ignoring what's going on in Donbass means that the West has no clue about what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. The Russians are in the process of closing pincers on a very large number of Ukrainian forces. Even President Zelensky has said that we are in danger of losing 40 to 60,000 of our finest troops. That is a statement of fact. Now, people say, well, why isn't this going faster? I mean, isn't, you know, we've been told by the West that this is tank country. Unlike Kiev with its forests, this is tank country where Russian tanks will, in like World War II, just flow across. They fail to acknowledge the fact that for eight years, the Ukrainians had fortified their positions in Donbass. They've created extensive trench works, reinforced concrete bunkers that connect villages and towns with these defensive belts that make the trench systems of World War I look primitive by comparison. The Russians have to take these defenses apart piece by piece by piece. It's very, very difficult fighting, yet the Russians have already achieved significant breakthroughs penetrating the totality of these defense belts. They're now in the process of rolling them up, and they're accomplishing what they want to accomplish. The big question here isn't whether Russia will liberate Donbass. It will. It's not, will Russia have a land bridge? It's already achieved that. The question is, what happens next? When the special military operation achieves its stated objectives, it should have been the end of the conflict. But because the United States, NATO, together with the Ukrainian government, has been pouring in tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons, we are prolonging this conflict and making it more likely that Russia will have no choice but to declare war on Ukraine, which changes the game in fundamental ways. Ukraine right now could end this conflict and preserve itself as a modern functioning nation state. Yes, it would require a lot of money to rebuild the damage that's been done, but by and large, Russia has left the civilian infrastructure intact. If there is a war, Ukraine will be annihilated as a modern nation state. They won't be able to survive. They'll, they'll need international aid just to survive. That's the fate that's gonna befall Ukraine if this war is not brought to a rapid conclusion once Russia achieves its objectives. And this is what the United States and NATO should be pursuing. If they care at all about humanity, Ukrainian people, and a larger peace in Europe, 
they should recognize that while they may not support what Russia is doing, they need to recognize the inevitability of the Russian victory and seek to bring this conflict to an end and bring peace to Europe. Instead, they're seeking to use the Ukrainian conflict as a vehicle to, quote unquote, bleed the Russian army dry. Sagan? I believe that was the original goal to begin with. That was well, to, it wasn't a stated goal. It became no, no, a goal of the United States. I'm just saying, of course, it wasn't a stated goal, but draw them into a quagmire military conflict, knock Russia down a number of rungs economically. Well, they believe I believe they believe the sanctions would accomplish that. That, of course, hasn't happened. The ruble right. after Biden bragged about destroying the ruble, the ruble stronger than it's ever been against the U.S. dollar. Right. And um, it's the European economy that's uh, staggering, not the Russian economy. But militarily, we we now know, I mean, the, even the Senate, Angus King of uh, Maine called the head of DIA to, to, to account uh, the other day. We know that General Miley testified, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff before the U.S. Congress prior to this, saying that Kiev would fall within five days, Ukraine would be defeated within two weeks. Uh, the DIA backed that assessment. So the idea that the United States thought that they could militarily bleed Russia white up front is absurd. No, nobody in the military believed that. It's only after the Ukrainians mm -hmm. uh, put up a, a more effective defense than anybody thought they would, including myself, that they suddenly transitioned into, hey, let's fight this war to the last Ukrainian, which is what they're doing. The losses the Ukrainians have achieved, if you believe the Russian numbers, they've, they've suffered close to 55,000 casualties. The dead right now are up over um, close to 30,000 and wounded and prisoners of war. That this is a huge number, and it's only going to get larger because we're reaching culminating points in the battle in Donbas, uh, in Mariupol. You know, they may be adding upwards of 2,000 casualties to that figure once the final defenders of the Azov factory, Azov steel factory, um, either die or surrender. When you surround 40,000 to 60,000 troops, they become prisoners of war, or they die. So this number is about to become even, even larger. And yet the United States, instead of doing the right thing, which is to sue for peace when confronted with the inevitability of a massive defeat, is getting ready to pass a $40 billion military-focused aid package to Ukraine to continue the fight. That's because we don't have U.S. troops there. They're Ukrainian troops. The result is that it sedates the U.S. public and insulates them from the horrific fact that we are sending tens of thousands of Ukrainians to their death, arguably not to protect their interests, but to serve our perceived geopolitical interests. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. Hey, last thing, this guy, Jamie Raskin, he is a piece of work. And I don't know if you've heard, I'm sure you probably have not. You probably got more important things to do. But I was listening to his language. He made these claims that Russia was raping women, killing children. And you've, I think, rather eloquently earlier in the show, and I think people should focus on it, indicated that Russia basically has gone to war with one hand tied behind its back, in a sense, to be respectful of civilian infrastructure, to be respectful of civilian folks. In your last comments, can you address the idea and the impression that Russians have systematically been raping women and criminally killing and targeting civilians, as Raskin's image-making of war crime projects? which I am sure would pale to the actuality of, of what these neo-Nazi-led far-right militias have been doing throughout the Donbass for years. But can you comment on that? Let, let me start off by saying that war is a transformative event, having participated in it. You can't go to war and succeed unless you dehumanize your opponent, because you're asking one human to kill another human 
in the most inhumane ways possible. It's not long distance. It's not copacetic. It's not call of duty on your computer. It's up close and personal. And if you don't desensitize yourself to the horrors of what you're ready to inflict, you will go insane, literally. Also, you can take any site. Let's pick a a town in in Texas with a population of 200,000 hardened men, oil workers, ranchers. You're going to have some criminals among them who are going to do some bad things. That's why you have law enforcement. It doesn't mean that the entire town is guilty. If if, if two cowboys go off and rape a girl, uh, those two cowboys are criminals. Not everybody else involved. And if you arrest them and prosecute them, then you're saying you're a law-abiding group. There is no doubt in my mind that amongst the 200,000 troops Russia has sent into Ukraine, there are some bad apples who have done some horrible things. There is one example that CNN broadcast, a rape of a 16-year-old pregnant girl. But apparently, when she reported it, the Russians took action, investigated. We don't know what the result is, but knowing the Russians like I do, they probably arrested this kid and the kid is now in in prison awaiting trial and some pretty harsh punishment because the Russians don't tolerate this sort of thing. So I'm not going to sit here and say that you cannot find an example of a Russian raping a Ukrainian girl. I bet you you can. I'm not going to say you can't find an example of Russians robbing somebody. I bet you you can. But it isn't systemic. It's not being ordered from above. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Russians have issued orders prohibiting this kind of behavior. And the Russian leadership is assiduous in ensuring that, A, it doesn't happen. And B, when it does happen, the people responsible are arrested and prosecuted. Mm -hmm. That's a statement of reality. But we also know that it's not the Russians who are committing the bulk of the war crime. The United Nations has come out and said most of the evidence they have, direct evidence of war crime, is of Ukrainians torturing and murdering Russian prisoners of war. The Washington Post, no friend of Russia, has written an article where they had to almost embarrassingly admit that the reason why there's so many civilian casualties isn't because Russia's deliberately targeting them. It's because the Ukrainians are digging in their military positions next to residential areas and then keeping the Ukrainian civilians in place as human shields, which is a war crime. So, no, I reject outright. And shame on Raskin. I know Raskin. He's useless. He's been at the head of this anti-Russian thing since the 2016 election. You know, he helped empower Christopher Steele's dodgy dossier. He's been at the, the forefront of you know blaming everything that's wrong with American democracy today on Russia instead of taking a look at himself and others who are undermining democracy from within by promulgating falsehoods, mistruths, and outright lies similar to those he's promulgating about Russia. Again, I'm not here to sing Putin's praises. I'm not here to say that Russia is right in everything it does. No, I am here to say that when we're looking at a problem of the magnitude that we confront in Ukraine, that we must look at the facts as they exist, the reality, because you cannot solve a problem unless you first accurately define the problem. And Jamie Raskin and his ilk are not defining the problem. They're creating a fiction. And any solution that is derived from that fiction is not solving a problem, but making it worse. Hey, last thing, just on the way out. The other thing Raskin indicated, he ignores that Putin has 83% support for what's going on, but he claims everyone's being thrown into jail and those types of things. In a time of war, I guess that's not unusual to repress certain types of claims that are clearly propagandist or not not based in reality and such. Are you aware of the repression of that nature going on in in Russia? Well, yeah. I, I, look, let's be let's be clear here. Russia has never been a Western style functioning democracy. The transition from the age of communism 
uh, under the Soviet Union to the you know newly founded Russian Federation that took place in 1991-1992 was an imperfect one. A lot of people forget that President Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, had tried in vain to uh, implement the dual policies of glasnost, openness, and perestroika restructuring in an effort to change the way that the Soviet Union worked. And one of the key aspects of glasnost was freedom of the press. But in the end, when, when confronted with the difficulties of, of restructuring, you know, Gorbachev had to embrace the tactics of repression, to start ruling by decree, to ignore the will of the Supreme Soviet, uh, you know, which he empowered through elections in, in, in 1989. Now, this, this was carried over into Yeltsin. Yeltsin was never a Democrat leader. He was always a dictator. He's one that the United States supported shelling the parliament in uh, October of 1993, the famous, infamous picture of Russian tanks firing on the white parliamentary building, setting them on fire, killing dozens yeah. of, uh, of Ukrainian lawmakers. But the United States bought uh, Yeltsin's re-election in 96. And so when Putin came into power in late 1999, early 2000, he was dealing with a situation where foreign governments had taken control of much of what passed for democratic institutions in Russia. And he's been struggling against that ever since. For mm. Putin to allow the kind of freedom of speech and freedom of uh, association that we enjoy here in the United States, he would have to allow the CIA and MI6 and other Western intelligence services the right to pay for these politicians. And he's not going to do that. So there's always been an inherent pushback by Russia on democratic institutions, not because of the democracy aspect, but because of the foreign control aspect it still exists today. So when he shuts down and pushes back, he's pushing back against what he believes to be foreign interference in the internal domestic affairs of Russia. We've got the same laws in the United States. We're not going to allow a foreign power to invest money into uh, political parties or into any kind of civil society entities in the United States. We got laws to the same. Of course, of course, we have those laws. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to note, though, that while we condemn Russia, there is no condemnation for what Zelensky has done in Ukraine, where he's outlawed political opposition. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, importantly, I might add, not just political parties, Scott, but also media. No opposition media allowed in Ukraine, period. And then here at home, I've been permanently banned from Twitter yeah. because of the stance I've taken about Russia. Since when has a nation built upon the premise of freedom of speech been afraid of free speech? Right. Right. So, you know, I find it somewhat hypocritical when Amy Raskin points an accusatory finger at Russia while ignoring the same kind of oppression and suppression that's taking place here in the United States. You know, he's a United States representative. Do your damn job, Jamie. Defend free speech. All free speech. Right. He's not. No, that's a great point. Very good. Well, let's leave it there. I mean, I really appreciate the analysis you provided tonight. We've been speaking with the Honorable William Scott Ritter, former United States Marine Corps intelligence officer, famously oversaw the disarmament of the weapons of mass destruction of Saddam Hussein from 1991 to 1998 and forewarned Americans then about the, the fiction that he had weapons of mass destruction, yet we proceeded in your analysis over the last number of years on the Ukraine issue, I followed closely and really appreciate the bringing to light some of these perspectives that are just completely ignored by the mainstream media. Scott Ritter, thank you for bringing light into darkness. Thanks for having me. 
Okay, brother. Have a good one. Okay, you too. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. Associate your back.